On this episode of AV Week, we take a look back at the biggest, best stories of 2021. What in the world shook the world of AV, and how did it impact you? All that and more, next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 540, recorded Friday, December 24th, 2021. The best of 2021. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Chief, the global leader in commercial AV mounting solutions. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audiovisual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host for this episode. We are going to look back at the whole year of 2021 for the commercial side of the AV industry. It has been a year of changes, not just for the industry, but also for AV Nation as well. Earlier in the year, we were acquired by Conference Technologies out of St. Louis. We also celebrated the 500th episode of this very show in March, signifying over 10 years of covering this industry with no plans to stop anytime soon although we're now doing better than the Google Hangouts call in our home offices. And as he is wont to do, our intrepid uh, producer and editor, Mitchell Tulin, surprised me with a surprise 500 episode. Um, Not just the guests, but also the fantastic folks who recorded ahead of time. Uh, Congratulations. Uh, And I'm still getting a little bit misty-eyed thinking about that and his work. So I'm going to stop uh, and continue on with the script that he's written. Uh, speaking of home offices, remote working has become much more of a standard for employees rather than the quick fix that was this 2020 during the height of the pandemic. But as more companies look into the hybrid workplace, cybersecurity becomes much more of a pain point uh, when remote access is involved. In AV Week 496, we talked with Dave Hatz about the importance of security when it comes to AV systems and how to educate your clients in staying secure. Um, I'm going to sort of channel my inner Bradford here. And anytime you are accessing a client's network remotely with software, you need to be aware of the liability that you are accepting because of it. So how important is it? It's paramount to get it right. Um, So, you know, it really comes down to making sure you have a strategy for how you are going to remotely access your clients' networks or your vendors or whomever. Um, And, you know, if I look at it, there's really four areas that that I start with. And this isn't the end, but I start with. And the first is upfront, you must have a discussion with your customer about the fact that you are going to be remote accessing a portion of their network through whatever, whether it's software-based like a team viewer, whether it's you're going to be accessing equipment directly, you need to be upfront with your customer and you need to have that discussion about how that is going to be executed. Many customers have their own policies that dictate the only acceptable manners and you sure better align with those. And if they don't have those, those hard restrictions, then that's where it opens the opportunity for you to come in with your defined strategy and to share it. So second then is having multiple layers of authentication. Um, there's many ways to implement this, but really at the, at the minimum, you need to make sure that your users and the equipment or systems that you're accessing have strong credentials, have multi-factor authentication, and are protected from someone just, you know, capturing a single password and getting access. Um, 
and, you know, I look at it just in my own personal life, even I only probably know one or two of my passwords, frankly, everything else that I access is in a password vault that I have the ability to access when I need it to pull out the encrypted 26, whatever character random generated password. But that's the way we need to be looking at it when we're securing our customers' systems. Third, then, is limiting the, the access to those credentials, even um, adopting the principle of least privilege, as it's known in the IT world, making sure that there's policies in place as to exactly who has access, when they have access, and how they're going to access it, so that either the customer or the integrator has the ability to pull the plug at any point if there's ever a question of anything. Um, and then fourth is the audit trail, that it, it, you really need to find a strategy where you can audit every action that you and your employees are taking. So again, if, if an incident like this ever occurs, you have clear documentation exactly what happened, by whom, by where. Um, you know, there's some tools out there that go as far as video recording every session where a user accesses a computer and every move of the mouse is recorded. Every type of the keystroke is, is monitored. And there's a lot of value to that. Now, that comes with a cost and complexity, certainly. But there's a lot of value to considering something like that, depending on where your needs are. But at the end of the day, we hear about these worst case scenarios the Home Depot and the targets of the past. You hear about things like this. What we don't hear about is how frequently smaller access breaches occur. And every one of those poses liability to an integrator, to a manufacturer. And I would probably be safe to say that very few of the people listening to this, you know, this podcast even, have the ability or the authority to take on the responsibility of saying, Sure, I am consciously making the decision to not securely connect in here. If something goes wrong, it will be okay. No, it won't be okay. There will be a lot of fallout from it. And so we all need to be, you know, be conscious of that, that there is, there's a lot of responsibility there with the power. It's not just download TeamViewer, quickly access the equipment and get on with my job. There's a lot more to it. And so we need to be thinking strategically about it and not just letting our techs run with whatever's convenient for them. All right, Mr. Capini, same kind of question when you're talking with, you know, uh, you're dealing with, with your dealers as well as, as their, their dealers as well, uh, or their, their customers. How do you ensure um, that, that, you, that you give them not only a, a sense of security, but also a sense, uh, a, a real sense of security in showing them that, that yes, you guys know what you're doing, that your systems are secure, um, that your devices are secure. Uh, so they'll put them on the network. So we, uh, we fortunately play both sides of that coin and we often invite the customers to log into our side whenever it makes sense because we can do the repro, but please log into our machine and do your setup on our side so that I'm taking the risk on my end. And yeah. I've got a really crack IT department that'll make sure that doesn't matter what the customer is doing, really. He's very contained, isolated, quarantined. And even if he has a breach on his end, it's limited to in scope as to what can happen. So this is obviously the best way I can take full responsibility for what goes on. But oftentimes that's not possible and we do need to log into the customer. And I think David hit on uh, all the good best practices, but let's be careful. I mean, the weakest link 
somebody's got a password that they've shared with 25 people, like in the uh, Florida example, uh, you know, one of the ways they got hacked is everybody at the power plant all shared one account and one password. I mean, talk about bad best practices. And so the one thing maybe I would add to Dave's list is internally, and he's doing it, but is you got to keep educating your people and just reminding them how important it is that, you know, we're putting other people at risk and maybe it's technician to technician. And so you guys are just trying to get your daily job done. But in reality, you know, like we're servicing a company and it's our reputation on the line. We certainly don't want to put that at risk. So we're very careful. And then, you know, we've instituted a lot of security change in the last two years, even in the way that we develop product. And uh, even on that end, I'm sure that there are 50 things we're not doing yet because there's no end to the amount that you can pay attention to security. And so it's a constant review and we'll improve. And then next month we'll add something else. And then, you know, at one point it was fine to do a vulnerability scan once a year. You did it, it was done and forget it. And, you know, then after a little while you realize, well, not all the tools report the same thing. Maybe we'll run multiple tools. Hey, wait a minute. Maybe we should be running these, you know, on every weekly build and then every daily build. And eventually, you know, like you keep looking at it as a constantly improving thing. And uh, yeah, I think it's really important because really we're a safety net for the downstream smaller guys that maybe don't have the means or the capability, the sophistication in some cases to handle it. And even the bigger guys, like I said, it's one weak link, you know, one of our encoders that leaves them an open channel to the outside is terrible for us. So we certainly don't want to be responsible for any of those types of things. So, you know, we really do uh, try our best <laughs> And I know that's maybe a weak statement, but it, it is a it is something of constant effort, right? We're never done, constantly improving it, and it's the best that you can do. And just keep always at it. And you know, in bigger companies like Matrox, we have dedicated security people who review our products and keep going at it. Maybe if vendors are finding themselves in a weaker spot, maybe sometimes you want to graduate to a bigger company. I mean, in terms of where you're buying your equipment or making sure that you audit your supply chain, right? Just ask some questions. Sometimes if you don't even get, you know, you ask the five basic questions and if you don't get the good answers, maybe you should uh, consider moving to someone else, you know? And in fact, uh, I can tell you that the number of guys that audit us every year has really, really gone up. And that's great. In fact, when you get those questionnaires from, like uh, the bigger companies of the world, it's like sometimes they're so impressive. There are even terms in there I haven't seen. It's like, well, that's something we're gonna have to add to the list guys to look into because, and unfortunately it's just not everyone's like that, right? So, but uh, I am happy that the uh, security has really improved a lot in the last two years, I think in general. And that's good because people are in general stepping up to take care of it. But uh, until everybody's running the education Bad practices like still running Windows 7 and still running one account for multiple users with one simple password. I mean, there, you could do everything in the world and it just takes one event like that and it just fails completely. And sometimes you do many things, right? Like solar winds and you get that type of disaster. That oh, yeah, absolutely. On your hands, right? It could be worse. They could, they could be running Vista, right? So... <laughs> You know, you'd be surprised that we actually had some of our larger customers can finish just last year, finish their migration to Windows 7. I'm talking no, to Windows 7, no not comment from Windows 7, right? Our next story involves the supply chain issues. Supply chain, supply chain, supply chain. 
Uh, it's been present throughout the year, uh, it, and is just for the record, will continue to be present throughout the next year. It comes from a variety of factors, such as the lack of workers in the midst of pandemics, the semiconductor shortage caused by droughts in Taiwan, and the blockage of the Suez Canal in March. This supply chain schism has affected not just the AV industry, but nearly every vertical of business. Uh, from AV Week 507, Bradford Ben starts us off talking about the scale of this shortage and what integrators can do in the meantime. So there's a couple things we do. Uh, and I also want to point out this isn't just pro-AV. This is residential. This is every market. Automotive. It's, yeah. I'm waiting for toothbrushes to be impacted because so many of them are Bluetooth now to make sure you brushed enough. But, you know, it's across the board. And uh, it's a challenge. So for me as an end user, obviously the, th the first thing we would look at is which has the most impact yeah. of if I have a room that seats 25 or a room that seats 100 and they both need one amplifier, the room that, get, that seats 100, I'm going to probably prioritize that. But obviously if the room that seats 25 is my office or the president of the company's office, they're getting that amplifier. Uh, so there's that. The other thing is as an end user, you have to talk with your integrators and depending on the size of the project, you have to talk with your supplier and manufacturers to let them know what's coming down the pipeline. Uh, we went through this with uh, the reduction of hazardous substances or Rojas years ago. Uh, and it's a pain. There's no other way to put it. But through the active communication, you can kind of manage it. And as Corey said, it is a balancing act of who gets stuff and who doesn't. Uh, but the other thing I tell people is, you know, the farther out you know, the better. But also, if you can avoid it, don't design to a single product, uh, which I know some people don't like, like Corey. So I'm about to give Corey and QSC some credit here by the fact they virtualized their QSC cores that is not as hardware dependent. But the same idea of, you know, if you need a 300 watt amplifier or a 400, watt amplifier qsc has like 20 models that'll do that i might be exaggerating so you define to that not saying i need this specific model because that gives you a better chance to get what you need now obviously with speakers and dsp sometimes it's a little more persnickety and has to be a little more precise but it's the same kind of idea of design to have options and it's a tough thing because loyalty is important uh, there are a lot of projects I couldn't have done when I was an integrator, even now as a transitioning end user to consultant without the support of the manufacturers and the integrators. So it's all about open communication. But I'll also say, and this sounds weird, it's not unheard of to have these scheduling issues. Uh, when I was a product manager. To this at another what? No, I'm about to tell you a story. All right. So. Harman had was releasing a new AVB product and to get the AVB chips we needed was a 22 week lead time. So if you want to launch a product and get, and then have inventory in stock and you have 22 week lead time, 
that becomes a huge thing. And then if you're like, oh, we can ship this to you by December 1st, you better order your products, you know, 22 weeks before November 1st. And it becomes a juggling act. Uh, it's, it's obviously impacting us because so many places have become just in time. You know, they're only going to hold five things in stock in order because that's the better way to manage cash flow, et cetera. And that's kind of made this one harder than the transfer of for Rojas. And also because it's hitting every manufacturer just as hard. But the big thing, sorry, go ahead, Corey. I was just going to say, and the fact that you know, it's been a tough year with COVID. So people want and need the business, right? So, I mean, this is just not, you know, this is just not an ideal, I don't think there's ever an ideal time, but this just makes it even more difficult. So I, I want to bring up something and all three of you feel free to chime in on this. And this is probably going to take us to where we only have two stories, which is fine. Does this situation warrant more localized manufacturing? Um, and, and what I'm getting by that is, is yes, we, we all depend on China for, for chipsets, right? That just, that's kind of what we do. Um, and, and I'm not saying, you know, oh, we should bring manufacturing back or, or wherever. This is not a political statement. It's, it's more of a, a supply chain question. Is, is it where, have we gotten the, to the place where Bradford's right from, from a business standpoint, the just-in-time ordering it makes complete sense for cash flow. And, and so you're not holding on to, to massive amounts of inventory, but that's assuming that we can get things in a timely manner. So it, do we think that it's going to start springing up more regionalized or localized technology manufacturing where chipsets and things of that nature are made in Europe, made in North America, South America, and in different parts of APAC? I, I think a couple of things. I think, you know, it's not just in time of, uh, just in time manufacturing, just in time when you need the product, you know, et cetera, the just in time kind of fits through the food chain. So I think there's, uh, yeah, I think we're going to see more localized, um, if not manufacturing, certainly inventory. And I think every company is looking at crisis management, right? And how do we put, uh, how to, how do we spread things around the globe so that, uh, we can avoid things like this in the future. And I would, uh, on this communication with the end user, the you know the integrator and the the vendor, we have to have communication because if a project gets pushed back, which they often do, allowing the manufacturer to know that to fulfill another customer order that might be more urgent um, would be you know would would help everyone you know et cetera. So being able to have you know really uh, consistent dialogue and planning, but so. I see regionalized manufacturing, re, uh, regionalized inventory, and for us to rethink the critical parts, maybe we don't just order them when the install happens, but we think we think a little bit further, uh, a little more long-term. And I also think Corey's very right on that, but I also think there's, there are others, not saying there are other solutions because technology is bad, but I still remember solid state amplifiers that didn't have microprocessors in them. You know, yes, DSP gives us a lot of stuff, gives us a lot of amplifier management, but it also means you need to have the chips to do it. And maybe there are times replacing a smart amp with a less smart amp makes sense. And sometimes that comes down to like you said, parts availability, but I do agree having chips manufactured in more places would definitely be helpful. 
especially for supply chain lead times. Uh, if you look at some of the large companies, they have a manufacturing facility in China that builds for Asia Pac Rim, a manufacturing facility in Europe that builds for EMEA, and then they have a manufacturing facility somewhere in the Western Hemisphere, whether it be North America or, you know, U.S. or Canada or Mexico, where they have a local facility to be able to do, to get that those parts faster, but also to ship part the finished goods to people faster. So I think it's also going to be a little bit of a supply chain logistics issue. And, you know, like you said, not trying to get political, but I do think one of the things that COVID has taught us is outsourcing as much stuff as we have to overseas has at times made a country less stable on its own. And it's not just the United States. It's India not being able to get enough vaccine, Canada not being able to get enough vaccine, all of those. So while the chip shortage is bad, it's emblematic of the overall global supply chain. One of the more interesting stories of the year was LG's OLED technology being honored with an Emmy for technology and engineering. Displays are taken off this year, especially in service of virtual sets used in such productions as The Mandalorian, which is awesome. Uh, in AV Week 497, Matt Scott talks with Chris Hope about the impact of this award for the AV industry and what it means for those outside looking in. It's not common, and I think that it happening at the Emmys, though, right? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it's, it's affirmation of the shifting of the guard, if you will, especially when you talk about like visual effects. So I'm a fan of the Mandalorian, you know, just, just spoiler alert there. And to learn that in the Mandalorian, you know, we talk about the visual effects behind it, you know, it's, it's not CGI, that it's actually the OLED screens that they used for it. And the fact that they, they you know, here we have this technology um, that is supplanting with the green screen, you're going to start to see other studios now using this technology and setting a new standard across the board. And it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's going to be cheaper. It's going to really be something that is a, potentially a game changer. And I think it's justifying kind of like what Don said, you know, the OLED technology, which is, you know, I think 10 years past of being in the making, um, you know, and it, <laughs> you know, to, to kind of justify what she said, but I, I definitely do agree that it's exciting. Um, and it definitely makes a huge statement with, within the AV world. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm similarly very excited about this, this move and the future of filmmaking. I'm, I'm really intrigued with the, the filmmaking side of it strictly because of how it may expedite production to not have to go back and, and, and map a green screen across multiple cameras and multiple right. views it it's it might be really really cool to watch see what comes down the pipe all right yeah. let's I'm, I'm i'm also very excited to have one more thing that i can point to and tell my 80 year old mother no that's what i do for a living <laughs> <laughs> 20 years on we're still trying to explain commercial av to right I, and just on the filmmaking side you know think about how much money goes into the post-production right mm -hmm. VFX and uh, just thinking around now OLED being so common, well, hopefully one day being so commonplace that I can imagine how much money will be saved, hopefully, 
yeah. uh, live. So the, the potential for this, you know, is, is exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of ramifications of that. Yeah. It's very far. Well, I want to add, you also have to think that the film industry is always ahead of everybody else. And the fact that they're using some of the te- top technology in the AV, AV industry, you have to think that that's going to start trickling down to residential and these 4K TVs are soon going to become out to date with mm. the new 8K. You know, we started mm. seeing 8K pretty prominent at Infocom back in 2019, the last time we had yeah. Infocom. And I just think that's going to become uh, the gateway. I literally squealed in my cubicle at work getting lots <laughs> of funny looks. Um, and it actually, I love you, Matt, but it broke my heart. Tim wasn't here because mm-hmm. Tim and I have fangirled and fanboyed this technology for over a decade now. If you've watched AV Nation or listened to AV Nation more than five minutes in the past decade, you've heard one or both of us ranting about how awesome uh, OLED technology is. So winning this massive award, and I mean, if, you know, it's the Emmys. People that have no idea that AV is even a, a, an industry know the Emmys, you know, it's like the Emmys, the Oscars, the Grammys, you know, it's practically an EGOT. Um, so I, I'm super excited about it. I think it's bringing OLED more into the mainstream. Hopefully that'll bring our manufacturer prices down and I will have it in my living room very soon. Aviation was not the only one celebrating anniversaries this year as the hashtag AV in the AM celebrated its third year of weekly discussion led by our Fantastic friend, Mr. Chris Netto. And those of you who may not know uh, or enjoy sleeping in on Sundays like our editor, Mitchell Tulin, AV in the AM was started by Chris Netto to start a dialogue between those in the AV industry and has since grown into its own virtual community. We talked with Joe Way in AV Week 493 about that virtual community and what it means to connect with others remotely and how that translates into the physical space. I think that there's a lot of commonality between... uh the last you know article and av in the am what has okay. made it uh successful is exactly that the fact that we can all come together no matter our background no matter where we are in the industry from an end user to a manufacturer to an integrator to someone who's six months into it to a seasoned veteran and we all can come together and put an opinion out there and meet in a common place and that's really going back to what made Hepma successful. You know, we, we throw the moniker that we were virtual before it was cool. And we spend the least amount of money on any platform for our things. We spend exactly zero. Okay. Um, and th- the thing is, but it's still popular. Why? Because we take like-minded people, we put them together and say, here, have a conversation about X topic. What, how does it impact you? What do you need from it? Um, Build those connections, the people who can get your needs taken care of, bring in the best people in the industry to speak to it. And that's the recipe for success. That's what works on AV and the AM. That's what has worked with Hetma. That's what's worked with the large manufacturers who have been able to be successful, even though there hasn't been, you know, the Infocoms, all those, because they've been able to create their own platforms where they can reach, you know, their customers on a personal level. And that's really the only secret. Right. It's not, can you send out the marketing email? Can you do the most, you know, fantastic backend uh, platform? Can you reach your person and speak to their needs and show how what solution you're going to bring can impact them for what they're going through? 
Um, and that's exactly what AV and the AM is. That's why we all get together. That's why I get up at a god awful hour on the on the West Coast. And if I and if I'm on at five ten a.m., I'm already upset that I missed ten minutes of it, right? And you know, and I, but I think that that's great yeah. uh, because that really defines who we are as a people. Um, so I like I like that. And I, I at another time when we have more time, I will tell you guys a story of of. The time that Chris and I were in London together, heading to um, heading to, to Belgium, actually, uh, this is back when he worked for Barco, and I, I got a, a chance to see the back end and the the master at work. We're on a train, and he's he's conducting AV in the AM, um, and, and it was it was quite phenomenal. So I, I am very humbled by that. Cassie, um, both from a, a again, Cassie used to work for an integrator, works for a manufacturer now. How do you do what Joe just said? You know, how do you connect? with your customers and your clients in a virtual way and really kind of deliver something to them, um, even if you can't be in person. I mean, everything Joe said is, I share the same um, feelings about it. It's, it's great to be able to have those types of communities and get to know people in a way that you wouldn't have that opportunity. I mean, I don't have a background up. You can see my pictures in the background and it humanizes me I'll have a kid run up behind me. I'll have a dog, you know, come over and ask, try to get my attention. And you see that and you all of a sudden become not the salesperson, not the business person, but you, I become a mom. I become, you know, somebody who knows what I'm talking about, but I also have a life that's not work. And you don't get that anywhere else except for the virtual platform. So then when you make it also an open community where anybody can come talk about anything, share ideas, thoughts, um, argue, you know, it becomes a family too. And so you're bringing this family dynamic into your interactions with colleagues, with, you know, somebody you would never even have a chance to talk to otherwise, maybe an executive at a large manufacturer. Um, and you're getting their opinion and their voices, but you're also seeing their life and their lifestyle and who they are way more than you would otherwise. And that's what I really do appreciate about this virtual new virtual world is how much you get to appreciate and understand people and you don't feel like you're on it all the time. I'm wearing gym shorts right now. I mean, I'm business on top. I promise you I have gym shorts on. <laughs> it's like, I get to be comfortable and talking and I get to talk to others. It's that type of virtual platform is great. And if we can, after COVID take this and learn from it and make it more human, moving forward into the trade show environment and atmosphere, fantastic. I start that off with a with something that I've always said from the very beginning of the pandemic and when we start first started seeing the plethora of virtual events, people should never, and I'm talking specifically to the organizers and the events companies that do these things, don't look at a virtual event like you would an in-person event. Mm. When you're doing an in-person event, the human connection, your eyes, your senses actually do a good job of filtering what you need and what you don't need. If it's too loud and you don't like it, you go away from it. If it's quiet and you like it, you go towards it. You can't do that in a virtual event. You're basically force feeding the entire event to people. In addition to the fact that this is a completely, I have three screens right now. So I do have my emails popping up on the side. I'm focused on the conversation, but I believe I can multitask, right? That what an event should strive for is to make me stop looking and focus on the event. So what needs to happen is a streamlining, like Joe said, of like-minded people. 
And that means to be more specific in the sense that if I'm a salesperson and I'm here for the marketing and for the product placement, put me in those streams. But if I'm an engineer and I'm not really interested in the sales part of it, put me in a tech stream. Make it as focused as you can. That's how you can build up a virtual event. Virtual communities thrive on people who can communicate with each other and just build on that. That's what AV and the AM. Well, AV and the AM, in my opinion, is a little different to that because, you know, the closest thing I can compare to AV and the AM is when I first went to India and I got to see the public transport system there, right? So if you go to a train station there, there's like a million people, right? And nobody's going to help you get on the train. All you got to do is just stand in the middle of a crowd. You end up on the train. They'll push you in, right? So that's AV in the AM for me, right? Just get up, you know, wake up at 8 a.m., say okay, you know, or I agree is good enough to start. Or, or better yet, I disagree, which is even better, right? Yeah, Especially or, I, or I disagree. Just say a two-word answer to some question that Chris posted, and you can actually have a conversation there. So uh, I like that, the randomness of it. But in general, I feel that virtual events need to be streamlined to the individual's taste. And, you know, whatever whatever way you do that, whatever method you use for that, make it a shorter event, half-day event, 30-minute event, doesn't matter. But you'll get the most out of it by getting the people to stay focused, basically, yeah. quite simply. All right. That, and then that, that visual right there actually is probably one of the better explanations I've ever heard of AV in the AM, so... All right, that is it for 2021. That's it for another year. Holy cow. Uh, 10 years, 500 episodes plus. This is episode 540. Uh, and y'all are still here. Y'all are still listening to to big, this big, dumb American, and I appreciate it. Uh, lots of changes uh, in the last year and, and more to come, I, I am certain. Um, but uh, for all of us here at AB Nation, for Paige and for Mitchell, and for the folks that you don't know yet, but you will get to know Taylor and Aaron's and Aaron's and more and more, uh, Allison's and Bonnie's and all the folks that, that help us make uh, Aviation what it is. We, we do appreciate it and we thank you uh, for your support, uh, for your continued listening, continuing to reading, continuing watching uh, Aviation. Uh, if we can be helped to you in any way, shape, or form, uh, please reach out. Uh, Tim at Aviation.tv. That's Tim at Aviation.tv. Connect with me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Do not follow me on the Twitters because at this point in the Christmas season, I am thoroughly uh, wrapped up in some sort of Bears gear, but still crying uh, in my eggnog about the uh, the lackluster Chicago Bears. Uh, so thank you so much for, for listening. Thank you so much for watching this year and every year and continue to do so. Uh, connect with us next year in 2022. As, as you know, coronavirus does what it's going to do, we will certainly be at events uh, as long as it's safe. Uh, to do so, uh, as as of this recording, I am planning on going to CES Consumer Electronics Show uh, in Vegas. I will also be in Southern California and uh, Barcelona for Integrated Systems Europe uh, as we sit. So uh, come out, join us, connect with us either online or in person. Uh, we do appreciate uh, the time that you give us every single week. So for all of us here at AV Nation, uh, we appreciate it and we wish you the, the happiest of New Year's, happy holidays, and, and hope you enjoy uh, time with your family. So go by the website, let us know uh, what you need, avnation.tv. That's avnation.tv. You'll find AV Week and a host of other shows. So all that and more at avnation.tv. That's avnation.tv. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That's all the time we have for AV Week. <laughs>